The following was recorded by the Zen Society, located in Shemong, New Jersey, near Philadelphia. Please visit us at thezensociety.org. Dharma, incomparable, profound, minutely subtle, pervading the entire universe, revealing right here, right now, is rarely experienced, even in hundreds, thousands, millions of eons. We can see it. We can listen to it. We can express and know it. May we completely understand and actualize this Tathagata's true me. The emotional patterns of our lives are very strong and deeply embedded. They often come into being because we've needed them to survive. But sooner or later, we all arrive at moments where the very thing, the very reaction or behavior that has saved us is killing us, keeping us from truly living. Being invisible once kept us from being hurt, but now we are vanishing. Listening once kept us in relation but now we are drowning in our unheard cries. Or avoiding conflict once kept us out of the line of fire, but now we are thirsting for contact that is real. Early in my life, I learned to protect myself, and this meant that I became very good at catching things. In fact, I never went anywhere without my catcher's mitt. No matter what came at me, nothing could surprise me. And while this saved me from the unpredictable assaults of my family and even helped me in my odyssey through cancer, it eventually had a life of its own. Everything, birds, women, friends, truth, was interrupted by the quick reaction of my myth. Eventually, nothing got through. And the very thing that helped me survive was now keeping me from being touched. The softness and wonder of the world was vanishing from my life. But I did not survive to live at a distance from things. And so I began the long and painful process of putting my mitt down and regaining choice about when and how to protect myself. I began to realize that letting life in was a deeper way to survive. In doing this work, I began to experience an amazingly thin lining of breath, which I, believed, which I believe is in all of us. Beneath it lies, beneath our lives, our impulse of heart, our true and genuine response to all that what we encounter.
Above it lives the reflex of our emotional survival, the quick twitch of our patterning. It seems our ability to be authentic and free cannot touch us until we breathe our way below the twitch of our patterning. Often, this requires outlasting the anxiety of needing to catch or fix what comes our way so we can truly respond from the center of our being. There is, after all, a difference between helping someone, because if you don't, you will lose their love, or some sense of your own image as a caring person, and helping someone because your impulse of heart moves you to their aid. We are, each of us, in a repeatable war between defending ourselves from hurts that happened long ago and the developed patterns which followed, and opening in innocence again and again, fearlessly, to the unexpected touch of life. Good evening. The singular and exclusive purpose of the life of the spiritual warrior, the singular and exclusive purpose or intention of the spiritual path, has to do with first discovering and then dismantling those emotional and psychological barriers we have built up in our lifetime consciously and mostly unconsciously. The dismantling of those barriers is the process in which Mark Nepo refers to when he talks about his own process of entering into life more directly, entering into life with an intention to be truly intimate with all of life's experience. Over the years, I often comment on the fact that many people who have come to me for direction often say to me that their life seems unfulfilling, that their life seems half empty, it seems incomplete. And often my reply is the same, because it is. Because when we begin to examine the patterns or the conditioning, our own behaviors in life, particularly in responding or reacting to fear, which we are going to talk about more uh, deeply this evening, particularly in our response or reactions to fear, we find that most of us live half-hearted lives. We find that, again, our life is, in fact, mechanical. What do I mean by that? The mind, in its peculiar and exclusive and singular point of view, which we'll talk more about in a moment, the mind is constantly reacting to what it perceives as, most of the time, as threat in our lives. So when we examine the human condition, which is a very central piece of Zen spirituality, Zen Master Dogen said years ago, Zen is first the study of the self. So when we examine this self, we tend to call myself or me or I and so forth. We find that it is always operating from a very defensive mode, from a place of threat. It does that 
because early on the mind claims a point of view that is about viewing the world around it in one of three different categories. It sees the world either as oppositional and in so doing threatening. It sees the world as friendly and in so doing we go looking for more and more of that. Or it sees the world from a place of folly or indifference, which the Buddha described as one of the three poisons of life. But most particularly, the mind is always viewing the world from two exclusive absolutes. It either likes the world or it doesn't like the world. It talks about it in the categories of being good today or bad today. It is always operating from a place of survival. As Mark Nepo points out, early on in our lifetime, when we forget who we truly are, when we lose that conscious awareness of our true nature and our true identity, and the true nature and true identity of life itself, we enter into a survival reality. We become fearful of the world for the first time. Even though the individual narratives may be different, the general narrative is always the same. We find ourselves afraid of life, someone scares us out of our authenticity, and we begin to go through life in a very defensive way, very carefully, very precise. This fear, and the problem with it, is that fear, while at the same time, is a very natural and, uh, reaction to real threat. All living things have it in our DNA, if you will. The problem with the human mind and the human condition, which the Buddha addressed in the Four Noble Truths, when he says to us, ignorance is the cause of our discontent, or for tonight's topic, ignorance is the cause for our lack of self-confidence. When he talks about it in the Second Noble Truth, what he is saying to us is that our ignorance of the mind and how it is operating at every given moment leaves us with a delusional idea, and that is the mind does not discriminate between real threat and perceived threat. In fact, science has made numerous uh, representations of this in experiments. For example, it is discovered that the brain reacts to both real threats and perceive threats in the same way. It does not discriminate between what is really life-threatening and necessary for us to react in survival mode from what we perceive to be life-threatening. And by that perception, that second category, we mean that somewhere along the line in man's evolution, what was experienced or perceived as real threat, what was really a threat in man's life, maybe a million years ago during the caveman days, which were very simple. Predators were a threat, real predators were a threat, fire was a threat, famine was a threat, natural disasters was a threat, and that was about it. These were real threats. The evidence was, you know, someone really was about to hit me over the head with a club. Someone, uh, food could not be found in my territory. A natural disaster had, shaped, uh, had taken place, and so forth. But in our evolutionary process, what was at that time the divine purpose of the mind being the survival of the being, 
as we evolved and became more civilized and entered into uh, identifying with civilization, that is, identifying with such things as nationality, such things as ethnic groups, cultural groups, our beliefs and opinions, that definition of the mind's purpose then became survival of the being and anything the being considers itself to be. At that moment, the mind literally went into a consciousness shift. And in that moment, and ever since then, for all of us, it is important in our efforts to liberate ourselves from the effects of fear, particularly that fear that the Buddha addressed in the Second Noble Truth that is part of our ignorance, or what psychology might say, the difference between real threat and perceived threat. In order to liberate ourselves from that, we need to understand that the second part of that definition, where the being came to believe it is its beliefs, its opinions, its ideas, literally deludes the brain and the body's experience of fear. Fear is constantly operating within us in the background. The Buddhist approach to addressing that and dismantling the behavior and the barriers, both emotional and psychological, that we have built up unconsciously in our lifetime, operating always in the background, the way to dismantling that involves thoroughly understanding, again, what the mind is up to in this given moment. What is the mind really up to when we are feeling a lack of self-confidence, when we are feeling uh, that we are not capable, when we are feeling that we are not lovable or acceptable, all of these uh, different dynamics in which fear expresses itself. So, fear is very real for all of us. It is embedded in our very DNA as living creatures, not just human beings, but animals, the smallest form of life in the ocean. If you, you know, ever done anything like under, you know, underwater diving and, and, and touched a living creature on the bottom of the ocean floor, it will react fearfully to that touch, quite possibly, more likely than not. So all life forms have this instinctive reaction of fear to the unknown. Human beings seem to be uniquely involved in fear that we call perceived threats. We perceive them as threats, not because they are real, but because our conditioning has led us and taught us to understanding that. From the moment that begins in our life, as Mark Nepo points out when he talks about his way of dealing with the perceived threats in his life and surviving those threats, we begin to develop particular behaviors, particular reactions to threat as means of, yes, surviving what we perceive literally to be a threat to us, even though it may not be. The work of any authentic spiritual practice, the work that we're going to take a look at tonight, involves in first becoming aware of our own particular patterns or behavior we develop in our lifetime to react to perceived threat, and then learning how to dismantle their grip on us in our lives, learning how to what we talk about in Zen, detach from that behavior. And the process involved in that has to do with, again, developing a better awareness 
of, again, what is going on in this moment in my life, and using that awareness as a means to literally transform our patterns or our conditioning into a more enlightened and liberated response to the given moment. Most of the threats that we experience, particularly in our modern day, are perceived threats. I would say about 90% of the time when we find ourselves fearful of life, feeling uh, you know, lack of confidence, and all of that has to do with, again, our condition. When we engage our lives more responsibly, bringing a greater awareness to our experience from moment to moment, which is often referred to as mindfulness, when we become more mindful of that experience in that moment, we can literally transform that, what we might identify as negative reaction to life, into something even more than just a positive reaction, a literal transformation response to the moment. That negative reaction, that behavior, that conditioning began in a very innocent way, but developed in a very clear, determined way, again, grounded in the sense of survival. So as I often say to people, after 30-some years of behaving that way, it may take another 30-some years to correct that, but that's entirely up to you, you see. I often say to my students, we can do this one of two ways. We can do this the long way or the short way, you say. But whatever distance or whatever period of time we want to invest into achieving this, the same means towards it remains. And that is self-discovery, as Dogen said, Zen is the study of the self. What is my mind up to? I've already given you a clue. In every given moment, the mind perceives life from a threatening position. It is always qualifying. You need to just take a look at the conversation in your head. You are always asking, do I like this or not like this? It is always qualifying and testing, assessing and judging. Every moment of life, the mind is constantly looking at life from a place of qualifying it. Is, is this something I like? Is it something I want to do? Is this good? Is this bad? The singular purpose for the mind reacting to life in that manner has to do with its, again, perception of the identity of the being. So it's more like whatever I identify with, my mind's singular purpose and objective is the survival of all of that. If I identify, if I see myself as my nationality, my mind's singular purpose is to defend that position, what I believe it means to be an American, and we see this going on in this country in such dramatic ways today, defending myself as an American and my idea of being American at any cost, even if it means splitting my family in two, even if it means losing friendships and what have you. If I identify with any particular belief system, and you may consider that belief to be a wrong belief, and you've, and you've communicated it to, uh, to me. I talk about how the only way we can, experience, we can explain the behavior of two people who love each other, who can at any given moment where one may disagree with the other, suddenly turn on that person verbally, and maybe even in some extreme cases, 
physically to do them harm just because they disagree has to do with, again, how the mind perceives that person disagreement. If as a young child we found ourselves constantly being challenged by figures we trusted and loved and maybe even being verbally abused, being called stupid for thinking that way, or, or someone who's got to be absolutely dumb to think that way, we begin to develop a pattern of protecting ourselves from that. And as adults, we find ourselves so easily hurt and so easily thrown off center by just somebody saying, well, I don't know if I agree with that. The only way that we can turn that around is to become more mindful of A, what is going on in that moment, and B, learning how to develop new patterns and new ways of behavior or reactions, more accurately responses instead of reactions to the moment. The mind is constantly reacting like a machine. It goes like this, stimulus, reaction, stimulus, reaction. I say something triggers you, you react. In Zen, in meditation training and in mindfulness training and applying mindfulness techniques, we learn to recognize a space that exists between the trigger and the reaction. A space where we take refuge to breathe in, find that moment to release our grip on our behavior or pattern or conditioning and are able in that moment to find the peace of mind and the groundedness that is inherent to us to respond rather than react. We need to recognize the old patterns and learn how to skillfully replace them with new patterns if we intend to change anything. And that is why I often say to people, spirituality is not a supplement. The ancients used to say, a day of reacting to every little thing, or as Rumi once wrote, if you, you, know, if you cannot be rubbed without reacting, how do you expect to ever get polished? Mm-hmm. You know what I'm so a day of lying and pilfering, the masters used to say, meditation isn't going to cure. So spirituality is not a supplement to life, where I go through the day with my old patterns and reinforcing them as I've been doing most of my life, and then expect to meditate and change all of that, or pray and change all of that, or, or you know, read about uh, you know, uh, enlightenment and change all of that. Spirituality involves a commitment on my part to do the work of studying the self, becoming intimately familiar with its narrative and its game, and then responding with wisdom and skillfulness. Thank you for welcoming me here this evening, Roshi Pinewind. Uh, Roshi and I have been doing this for many years. It's been a while. It's been four years since we did this last time, and ten years, about ten years since I was here last time to do this. There was a great Jewish mystical sage, his name is Reb Nachman. He lived in a place in Europe called Bratslav. And Reb Nachman said the following, he taught the following. He said like this, he sang like this. 
כל העולם כולו גשר צר מאוד, גשר צר מאוד, גשר צר מאוד, which means all the world is just a narrow bridge, just a narrow bridge, just a narrow bridge. Vehaikar, vehaikar, lo lefached, lo lefached klal. And the main thing, and the main thing to know is not to fear at all. Not to fear at all. So you heard about, Roshi speak about perceived fears and actual fears that come in life. And we know even from a scientific, from a psychological perspective, he's right. Most of what we perceive in life these days are these perceived fears. You know, if we were to ask you a lot of times when somebody comes for counseling and they say, I'm afraid of this or that, one of the techniques we use is we say to somebody, and so what if it happens? What then? And it rarely ends with, so I die. <laughs> By the way, if you said that, I'd say, so then what? <laughs> but it usually doesn't get to that place. So there's usually plenty of room. And rarely do we come to that place of actual fear, of actual something that's threatening us. And as the Roshi spoke about, and whether it's in Buddhist tradition or Jewish tradition, Kabbalistic tradition, Sufi tradition, you name it, this whole idea of learning to separate ourselves from our base nature, from that which has us in common with the animals. That's what spiritual study is all about. And it would be so wonderful if that were something that came naturally and you, you could imagine you pick up a book or, and you get it or you, you take a pill if you find that pill, let me know. I've been looking for it for a long time. But there's no such thing. It takes this process. It takes the process that coming to a Zen monastery or coming for spiritual practice or spiritual direction takes you through. That's what it's all about. Fear is the mind killer. Fear is the little death that brings total obliteration. I will face my fear. I will let it go over me and through me. And when it is gone, I will turn the inner eye to see its path. Where there is fear, where there was fear, there will be nothing. Just I will remain. Anybody recognize that? The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Well, but do you recognize the whole thing? That's from Dune. Remember, remember Dune? That's the litany against fear. If you go on the web and you put in litany against fear, that's what they do. Fear is the mind killer. Fear is the little death that brings total obliteration. Why is that? Because fear causes us to identify with our false self. Fear causes us to identify with our egoistic self. Because if we identify with our authentic self, with our true self, with our Buddha nature. With, in Judaism we call it with the nishama, with the, that part of the soul, the higher aspect of soul. If we did that, 
What is there to be afraid of? What is there to be afraid of? Dying? Been there, done that. Have the t-shirt. What is there to be afraid of? So what is the process for learning how not to be afraid? What is the process for coming in contact with this divine self? So one of my teachers, uh, Ken Wilbur, says the instructions for how to do that are written on the box that your heart came in. <laughs> Would you like to know what they are? Yeah. I'll give you the instructions. This is the instructions. So as you sit quietly and you imagine the clouds going through the sky and you know you can pay your full attention to the clouds going through the sky and yet you're not the clouds. You're watching the clouds. And you can pay your attention, you can focus your attention on your body. Why don't you do that? Just focus your attention on what it feels like to be in a body. Usually when you tell people that they think about their body, feel your body. So you can have an awareness of your body. So it's clear you're not your body. Because just as you can watch the clouds and you're not the clouds, you can be aware of your body and you're not your body. And what about your heart? What about your feelings, your emotions? Can you observe them? Of course. What are you feeling? So just as you can observe your emotions, it's clear that you're not these emotions. And what about your thoughts? Can you watch your thoughts? Maybe with a little bit of practice. You could see your thoughts like being projected up on a screen. They come and they go. I'm watching my thoughts. So if I can watch my thoughts, and I could watch my feelings, and I could watch my body just as I can watch the clouds, it should be clear that you're none of those things. So the question on that box that your heart came in is, then who are you? Who is watching you go through this life? Who is experiencing that? Is it not your true nature? Is it not the part of you that's been the same for years, decades, centuries, eons? What is that true face? before you were even coming into existence. And if you can experience that, what are you afraid of? Where does fear come in? Is it necessary to perceive those fears of things that don't threaten you? Really? Really? I had the opportunity for a number of years to study with um, Dan Millman, who wrote the Peaceful Warrior series. And Roshi refers often to being a spiritual warrior. And this whole idea, what, what's the, we, we tend to get the peaceful part, you know, we uh, who like spirituality, we like the peaceful part, we like being peaceful. 
But what's the warrior part? What's the warrior part? The warrior part is the work that Roshi spoke of. The warrior part is the part that says, I have to develop more awareness. This takes effort. This takes the strength and courage of a warrior. So to develop the peace and the love and the care, uh, that's very important. But to develop the confidence, to put aside the fear. One of the things we did with Dan Millman, is, so here's a group of people, and many of them are in their 60s, 70s, 80s, and he goes around and he hands everybody a plastic knife. And he says, you and you, come on up here, in, front, in the middle of the room. And he says, I want you to attack each other with the knife. It's a, plastic, it's a rubber knife. And most people are, are aghast at this. But the whole purpose, and he takes us through teaching us how to do that, and teaching us how to defend, and teaching us how to, how to launch an attack. The whole purpose is learning to be a warrior, in a way that obviously no one's going to really get hurt. I'll give you a more fun exercise that he does. You take a straight pin and you stick it in the floor. It's like if you have a wooden floor, it's a good idea. You stick the pin in the floor with the, the flat side up, right? And then you go like this on the pin. Ooh, you know what happens? Nothing. But to over, it's a simple exercise to overcome because you're feeling, oh, I'm gonna, it's going to go through my... And it's not. You put the pin part in the floor doesn't, you can't hurt you. You flatten the pin. That's what happens. But you'd be surprised how many people won't do it. Think about it. Find that place inside of you that's brave. Find that place inside of you. And there's little exercise and there's little ways. I once, uh, years ago, I went, came to Roshi and I asked him advice on something. And he said to me, well, it sounds like you have two paths you can go. Uh, that'll, and they'll both work. And one's the simple path, and one's the hard path, the difficult path. And they'll both work. And I said, oh good, I'll take the easy path. And he said, no you won't. <laughs> that which is difficult, but will work out, is what you have to do. That's how you build character. That's how you build confidence. That's how you overcome fear. That's how you come in contact with your authentic, true self. Who is the one asking the questions? Who is the one that's aware of this existence that's playing you? Who is that God that's playing you in this life? My teacher, Reb Zalman Schachter, every morning would wake up and say, thank you, God, for playing Reb Zalman once again. Thank you for playing me in life today. For that's what's happening. It's our Buddha nature, it's our God nature that gets played as to who we are. And the, that's the gift to us. What do we give back? Awareness, growth, spirituality, lack of fear, coming to who we truly are, transversing that narrow bridge. Lo lepache klal, don't be afraid of anything. Don't be afraid of anything. And if you are, don't worry about it. <laughs> the guided meditation that Rabbi took you through 
perhaps in that moment convinced you, yes, I'm not my thoughts, I'm not my feelings, I'm not the clouds. But we both know that within 15 or at best an hour after you've left here, you will return to being your thoughts, to being your feelings, to being your opinions and beliefs. And the evidence is the time that you will invest in ensuring the survival of all of that. And so in Zen, we know that reading about this, that listening to the rabbi and I tonight about this is not enough. The difference between authentic spirituality and the stuff we have culturally accepted to be spiritual is the work. When Albert Einstein would teach in Princeton, his first year students would enter the class waiting for him to arrive. And the, board, the blackboards, which were on every single wall of the classroom, were always erased and prepared for him. And he would walk in and take the next 20 minutes of the class to write a formula that eventually covered every part of each of the blackboards. And he'd get to the very end of the one blackboard, put up an equal sign, and turn to the class and say, give me the answer. And obviously they would all sit there baffled and dumbfounded and confused, and their mind began to either try to answer the formula or come up with all the reasons why it couldn't. And none of them obviously had the answer, and he knew that. And he would eventually say to them, the difference between Albert Einstein and you is a simple reality. I've done the work. That's all. And the difference between the truly liberated soul and one trapped in the conditioning that leads to a fearful life is exactly the same. Doing the work. When the rabbi talked about the quote from Dune, he said, I will let it run through me and over me. These words point to a context for authentic spiritual practice as we now start to talk about the work itself. In order to liberate myself from the very conditioning and the very causes of my fear, I need to begin first of all with a willingness, a willingness that does not arrive sometime later when I'm ready. We talked about this earlier, the rabbi and I, and I've talked about this for years in different uh, forms, including the one that happened two Saturdays ago, or last Saturday. And I said that one of the problems with waiting for people to be ready, after 41 years of doing this work, my experience is they never will be. So when we talk about being willing, it really comes down to the conversation that uh, the rabbi and I had, that he referred to years ago, between the simple road and the difficult road. It has to do with how bad you really want to be free. And so the willingness comes from a simple declaration on my part. A declaration on my part, whether I understand it, whether I feel it, whether I'm convinced about it, here and now, I willingly choose to enter into an intimate experience with myself that I've come to identify myself to be. Another way of saying that that you may have heard in therapy and other uh, different schools is I need to own my stuff. I need to begin by owning my stuff. 
And part of that involves a willingness on my part to do as Shakespeare Buddha said, to thine own self be true. I need to be honest about my fear. I need to be honest about my lack of self-confidence. And I need to own the causes for that. And I need to own the solutions for that. In Zen, it is clearly taught from the very beginning. If you came here tomorrow and said you want to be a student and study here, you would hear me say the same thing I said to the very first person 41 years ago in Riverton, New Jersey and in Pensacola, New Jersey. I said to every one of them and have ever since, there is no magic here and I am not a magician. This will be entirely up to you. So like everything else, whether it's therapy or whether it's spirituality, we begin by owning our lives and that means the complete package. And in order for me to own my complete package, which, is, which includes both my weaknesses and my strengths, not just my strengths, my fears and my hopes and dreams and confidence, the whole package, in order for me to do that, I need to be willing to be truly intimate with my experience from moment to moment. When we talk about being aware of your body, when we talk about being aware of your emotions, this requires a willingness on my part to be truly intimate with my life, to take responsibility for it, to stop leaving the responsibility or projecting the responsibility for my happiness and well-being anywhere else but where it can only be established. Time and time again in all of the great religious traditions, all of the teachers have said the same thing. If you never find the peace within yourself, you will never find it anywhere else. Uh, I often talk about the story about uh, someone who had petitioned a particular monastery about 12 or 13 years ago to enter into it. And when he was asked as to why he wanted to be part of the community, he said, I want to find peace of mind and body. And the interviewer said to him, well, unless you bring that with you, you're not going to find it here. You're saying, you're not going to find it here. The world around us, and I talked about this at great lengths on the one-day retreat on Saturday, the world around us is nothing more than a reflection of our inner experience. We see the world around us as frightening because we have not handled or dealt with that fear within ourselves. Minimize and eliminate the effects of fear within yourself and the world becomes a wonderful place, a place of great potentiality, a, a place is what the Buddha called wondrous and miraculous. But not absent, and this is the other problem that many people need to confront, not absent of moments of fear. It is not about no longer being fearful. It's about no longer being managed by your fear. It's about no longer being attached to the story you tell yourself about fear. When Rabbi talked about the uh, uh, experiment or test of the needle on the floor, uh, again, the perception of what would happen if I did that was more fearful than the reality. It was more, was more frightening than the reality. And it was that perception, that story I tell myself, 
that limited me or kept me or refrained and restricted me from entering into discovering something that could have literally liberated me or freed me up to grow even more. Our fear and our attachments to the patterns and behaviors we have developed over our lifetime literally limits and restricts our growth. It puts us in a fixed position, either frozen, either fighting, or either fleeing. And when we are frozen, or fighting, or fleeing, we are not growing. And when we are not growing long enough, we die. And the way we die by not actually having our bodies die is the way we've done it most of our lives. We become someone else than who we truly are. We become someone else than who we truly are. There's, if you have uh, On Demand in a, uh, an HBO, I watched a documentary last night of one of my most favorite characters, and I'm sure one of yours too, Doc, uh, Mr. Spock. Mm-hmm. And it was about Leonard Nimoy and his life. If you haven't seen it, it's called the, For the Love of Spock. Watch it. What a, what a, what a Buddha. What a, what, a, what a man he was, and what have you. And he, I didn't know until I watched this that he was also a songwriter and a poet. And he wrote a book of poetry, and his first poem he ever wrote went something like this. I can't remember all the lines, but it went, I will never be the fastest runner. I will never even win the, win the race. But what I am perfect at being like no one else is me. Is me. And this is a fundamental teaching in Zen, that if you really want to be perfect, all of you perfectionists out there, you can do it. All you need to do is be you, because no one, no one can be you. No one. Even if they clone you, it's only a clone. It's only a copy. So that is why all of the emphasis in Zen spirituality has to do with what the rabbi referred to when he used the term your true nature. Who you were, the the koan that he referred to goes more like this. Show me your face, the master asked the student, before your parents were born. Show me your face before your parents were born. Who are you really? And our fear, when it was first established within us in our childhood, psychologists think somewhere between birth and four or six year, we, we get scared out of ourselves, as I say, and we, we become imposters. You need to come back next month to learn more about that. The topic is called the donning of the mass. We become imposters. And our entire life's purpose, whether you realize this or not, and this is going to shatter some of you tonight if you want to walk out, feel free to do so. Our entire life's purpose from that moment becomes one of survival. And everything, every choice we've made since then, until we become aware of this and start down the path of uh, transforming it, every single choice I've made, including the relationships I have, including the address I live in, the schools I went to, the careers I've chosen, every single choice I've made has been about choosing the one that will ensure my survival has been about choosing the right one that will support me 
in being in the world, even though that being, being in the world, is not who I truly am. How many people do you think there are on this planet going to jobs and careers every day of their life, starting on Monday, they really would prefer not be going to? Why is that? What's up with that? You're saying? There's a saying in Zen, the most important thing you have to offer me is your happiness. When you're happy, you'll let me be. You're saying? I tell parents, and again, in October, we have a parenting seminar happening here. And I tell parents, as I have over the many years, the most important thing you have, the most important contribution you have to offer your children is your happiness and well-being. Because when ch children see their parents happy and content, that is a message that frees them up to be who they truly are. And when we are coming from that place of who we truly are, we find all the self-confidence there is to find in the universe. Why? Nimoy said it. Spock said it. I am the only one that can be perfectly me. I never in error. I don't make a mistake being who I am. I never fail at that. So, as I said a few moments ago, what, you know, the process, as Rabbi asked us, so what is that process? The process first begins with a willingness on my part to own my experience. And by owning my experience, I mean to become intimately inquiring into it every time I find myself afraid, every time I find myself feeling a lack of confidence, feeling I'm not capable, and so forth. When my daughter began, my seven-year-old daughter began to uh, understand language, I taught her four mantras that when she's home with me, she knows she must re re uh, recite before falling to sleep at night. That's the first thing we do. Once she's in bed, ready to go to sleep, I say, recite the four mantras. And she recites them. I am wonderful. I am beautiful. I am capable. I am loved. And then we count down the uh, rocket ships launching to the moon, and we go to the moon, and so forth. That's what we do every, every night since she's been able to talk and understand language. When I first started doing it, you know, I would recite it with her, obviously, until she remembered it, and then finally she remembered it and recites it on her own to this day. The amazing moment came for me one day when she was trying to do something. And I, I heard her, you know, getting frustrated. She was unable to, to do what she, whatever it was she was doing at that time. And I was in the kitchen and she was in the living room trying to do that. And suddenly I heard her yell, Dad, Dad, come here, come here. And she had done the task. And she held up what she had completed and she said to me, I am capable. <laughs> and I said, exactly. Never, never forget it. Now, as I see her, you know, too fast, becoming eventually a young woman and eventually a grown woman, uh, I've added something to that mantra. I am capable. I don't need a boy to show me. <laughs> I'll let you know how that works. I don't need a boy or a girl. Right, a boy or a girl to show me. No one. And so forth. We own our stuff. 
Dogen says, Zen first is the study of the self. Rumi said, our task is not to go looking for the love, not to go looking for the peace, not to go looking for the happiness. Our task is to see that all of that has always been right in front of us, right with us, within us all the time. So all that is necessary, he said, is to first become aware of those psychological and emotional barriers and then dismantle them that have preventing us from seeing it all the time. As young children, as infants up to again about maybe the age of four or six, whenever it happens, somewhere in that period, we saw it. We knew we were wonderful. We knew we were beautiful. We knew we were capable. And we knew we were loved. Until it got scared out of us one way or the other. From that moment we forgot. In the second noble truth, the Buddha talks about this. He says that the cause of our discontent or our suffering is ignorance. We are ignorant, first of all, of who we truly are and what this really is. And we ignore our wondrous, beautiful, capable and loving self to be all of these imposters. Because at that moment, as I said so far tonight, our life becomes about survival. Who cares about that stuff unless that stuff serves our efforts to survive? That is why all of the great teachers and all of the true spiritual uh, practices and religions of the world talk about what? <coughs> Dying to this self. Jesus says you must die before you can be born. The Buddha talks about losing this false self in order to awaken to our true self. We often get stuck in that teaching because, again, the mind is identifying with the very stuff that has nothing to do with who we truly are. And here's the teacher not only encouraging but requiring us to drop that stuff, to lose that stuff, to detach from that stuff so that you can truly see who you are. And so the mind goes into survival and resists. I often say to people, this ego that you have identified with will not go down easy. It will go down fighting. And remember, you have spent a whole lifetime feeding it. You've created the very monster that you want to defeat. Be ready for the fight. Be ready for the difficult path and not the easy one, I'm saying. So once I've owned my stuff, once I have created the willingness to really look at this self I call myself and realize some of the things that temporarily you may have connected with when Rabbi was guiding you through that uh, meditation process, but really get to see how you are not your thoughts, you are not your emotions, you are not your feelings, you may have thoughts, you may have emotions, you may have feelings, or more accurately, they all have you, you're saying. Most of us never act. Think about this. When was the last time you acted on anything without first referring to your thought about it or your feelings about it? When you were a kid, you acted and then you felt, you're saying. You acted and then your parents or someone else made you think, you're saying. So when was the last time you acted apart from what you thought or felt, what you believed, or what opinions you held. Detaching from that self, that false self, is what all the great teachers have pointed to, in order that 
that true self that never changes, that wondrous, miraculous, beautiful, capable, loving, and loved self will surface naturally. It's about removing all of the layers of delusion until that self can be revealed. And once you have seen it, as I tell people for the second time, nothing is ever the same. Nothing is ever the same. But, beware. The students of the ancient masters would ask, what happens after that? What happens after enlightenment? And they all said the same thing. 10,000 more hours of meditation. <laughs> Reb Zusha, great mystical rabbi, is dying. And as all his students are gathered around, he's crying and crying and crying. And they said to him, Reb Zusha, what are you crying for? You're like Moses. You're going to go, you're going to die, you're going to go up before God. And when God says, were you like Moses? You're going to be able to say, yes, I was like Moses. So why are you so upset? Reb Zusha says to them, you got it wrong. When I die and I go before God, God's not going to say, were you like Moses? God's going to say, were you like Zusha? Were you true to yourself? Were you true to who you really are, as Roshi has said? That's the test. That's, that's our mission. That's the prime directive for us being here in life, whether we know it or not. And whether we're here studying spirituality, whether we're, God forbid, in the streets selling or doing drugs, that's still the journey. The journey to oneness. The journey to true self. And as you've heard, it very, very rarely, if ever, happens spontaneously. I think if, in, in the few people we may see that seem to be born that way, they probably have been doing it for lifetimes. And they come into this lifetime having, you know, they meditated five lives, 10,000 hours per life. And then they, they're born, and yeah, they can do it. But that's so rare. It's so rare. Baker Roshi was once preaching to his students, and he said, Satori, and he said, enlightenment is an accident. It happens by accident. If you seek it, it won't happen. It happens by accident. Roshi, may I ask a question? Yes. If it happens by accident, why do you spend all that time meditating? <laughs> Roshi, Baker Roshi responded, meditating makes me accident prone. <laughs> And in a similar way, the great golfer Ben Hogan was interviewed once by the newspaper and they said to him, how is it that you're so good? And he said, I I'm just lucky, I'm very lucky. And one of the reporters said, wait a minute, you practice 12 hours a day. You practice golf 12 hours a day. What do you mean you're lucky? He says, practice makes me lucky. <laughs> it's the same principle. It's the same principle that goes on that way. I love this example. One of my colleagues, Rabbi Rami Shapiro, who studied in a Zen monastery for a number of years, in fact, um, his Roshi, he, he sits down with his Roshi and he says, I don't know if I want to be a rabbi or I don't know if I want to be a Zen monk. 
I don't know if I, maybe I should be a rabbi, maybe I should be a Zen monk. And the Roshi said to him, you must decide what man with one ass cannot sit on two cushions. <laughs> and Rami Shapiro gives it, when somebody asked him once at a gathering we had, what does it mean to be enlightened? And this was his answer. He said, this is what it means not to be enlightened. I sit at home and I think, I would like some ice cream. So I go to the freezer, and I look, and, I, and there's ice cream. And I think, I can't believe my wife bought my favorite ice cream. She knows I'm on a diet. She knows I'm <laughs> diabetic. And she buys this ice cream just to torture me. I can't believe it, that she has this ice cream here. And, I, and, and what am I going to do now? I'm so angry. Well, maybe I'll have a little ice cream. And he proceeds to eat the entire half a gallon. He says, now this is the enlightened. I think I'll have some ice cream. He says, I go to the freezer and I either take it or I don't. There's no story. The story that Roshi refers to. How often do we have to tell the story? Now, what we do know is from a psychological perspective, sometimes it's very helpful to tell our stories. We really do. It takes the energy out of them. It, it can help us to reestablish our focus. It's a lot of what talk therapy is about, to be able to tell our stories. But hopefully the goal of that is getting the story out of the way. Telling the story until we realize we get down to the key of it. I remember somebody coming to me, knocking on my door years ago, a friend, and, and there in tears. And I said, what's the matter? What's the matter? And he, said, and he went into this whole thing. I was waiting for my girlfriend to arrive. I hadn't seen her in so long. And she flew in. And we got together. And she told me that she met somebody else. And she was breaking up with me. And it must be because I, I, I wasn't passionate enough. And because I don't look good enough. And, and he went on for like hours and hours and hours and hours. And when he finally ran out of steam, I said, now tell me what happened. <laughs> and he looked at me and he said... My girlfriend broke up with me. That's what happened. That's what happened. The rest is the story. And again, that could be helpful to get that out. But sometime, and Roshi, I know is the first who will tell you this, we become obsessed with that story. Obsessed with that story. There's a, an old man on the bus, and he's sitting there, and he's going, Oh, am I thirsty? I'm so thirsty. I'm dying. I'm so thirsty. So the lady next to him can't take it anymore. So she gets up, she goes to the back of the bus, there's a cooler, she gets him a little cup of water, she gives it to the man, he looks at her, drinks it. Ah, thank you. I was so thirsty. <laughs> you have no idea how thirsty I was. Oh my God. I... Oh my God. So we tell our stories. We tell our stories. And part of spiritual practice is becoming aware of that. Because as we become aware of that, we have less of a tendency to do that. Mm -hmm. And more of a tendency to move forward and do the work that is required of us. And the saying is, you have to do that spiritual practice until you don't have to do that spiritual practice anymore. Good luck, because as Roshi said, once you're enlightened, you still have hours and hours, to, thousands of hours ahead of you. It's something that we have to keep doing. Somebody 
once asked me, once said to me, if the Jewish people had the revelation of God, because it says in the Bible that they saw God. You realize that? They saw God. They experienced, it's usually translated as the experience, because we can't believe they saw God. It's, and they describe what God looks like in Exodus. They saw God. So why isn't it that from that point on, all of us are, are enlightened? And 40 days after they see God, what do they do? They build the golden calf. They worship the material nature, the animal nature of the human being. And the answer that the sages give and the spiritual teachers give is that they didn't continue with spiritual practice. In other words, I hate to break it to you, but if we were to find that pill I referred to and give it to you and you were to have a spiritual experience, I guess we could kind of have pills that'll do that these days, <laughs> that would give you a, a spiritual experience, you're not going to stay there. What's going to keep you there is coming here, studying with spiritual teachers, going for spiritual coaching, spiritual direction that we provide. That's what's going to keep you there. That, or if, once you get there, there's no experience you can have, even a revelation at Mount Sinai, even, a, even seeing God, there's nothing you can have that will keep you there without continuing to meditate, continuing to do the inner processes of self, to continue to do this. And I want to tell you, it's not selfish. Wanting to do that and us urging you to do that is not selfish. The world's survival requires you, relies on you to do that. The universe evolves. We've evolved from subatomic particles to atomic particles to molecules, on and on to life, to, to consciousness, to conscious human life. And the evolution continues. And the evolution, it's the first time in history that we can, can logically and can willfully be involved in the evolution of the universe mm -hmm. because it's an evolution in consciousness. And we need you to do that. I, I was once sitting with Reb Zalman and he was talking about the doom and gloom and, and, and the universe and the politics and everything that's going on and global warming and we're all doomed. And I said to him, I said to him, look, all these different traditions talk about the holy beings that keep the world in order. In Judaism, there are 36 of them. We call them the Lamed Vavniks. Lamed Vav is 36. So there's 36, excuse me, men, right? Patriarchal tradition. 36 men that keep the universe and keep the world sustained. And there are the great Sufi masters. And, and, and there are the bodhisattvas. And there are these people who keep the rest of the world going. And I said to him, so we don't have to worry, right? <laughs> and he looked at me with a straight face and he said, I want their telephone numbers. <laughs> he said, don't you get it? We are them. We are the guardians of the world. You sitting right here in this room are the guardians of the world. It's up to you. This is... I, I hate to say it to you this way, but you really don't have much of a choice. Your choice is survival and the future and helping us to bring about a blessed future or not, God forbid, to help us out. So in um, evolutionary spirituality, the practice called evolutionary spirituality, 
that's the approach that's taken. Instead of saying, I have to do this, I have to meditate, I have to get up early in the morning, I have to sit like this, I have to come to Zen chat, I have to do these things for me or, or, or maybe to look good or for egotistical reasons. Try keeping it in mind that you're doing it for the survival of the universe. The survival of all. That's why you're here. That's why we're here. So we constantly, as Rabbi pointed out, call upon the icon of the spiritual warrior. We call upon the icon of the spiritual warrior or the image of the warrior is used in our discussions similar to reflecting on in ancient Japanese feudal time there was the samurai. And one of the things I talk about at great lengths is that once you step into this path you who are on the road must have a code that you can live by. <laughs> and so, in ancient Japanese feudal times, the samurai lived by the code, the code of Bushido. For the samurai, the code took such precedence in his or her life that any violation of it, any dismissal of it, led to him or her taking their lives. It would be better for the samurai warrior to die than to violate the code. And some, saw, some who have seen this in movies or heard about it or read about it misunderstand it in many ways, in the same way that when you come from uh, traditional uh, uh, theistic uh, traditions and you approach taking the precepts in Buddhism, one of the hardest things in teaching the, about those precepts is that they're not laws, they're not if you break them you're going to go to hell, they're guidelines, they're intended to inspire and encourage us. Seppuku, which is the Japanese name for uh, in, uh, involve, uh, where you kill, kill yourself by cutting open your belly and so forth, that ritual, Seppuku was to inspire you. You know, the very notion of if you break the code, you take your life, certainly would inspire me. So they were inspired to see the code as exclusive and as primary. In spiritual practice, as a spiritual warrior, we take the same approach. The code is absolute. And by absolute, we mean that in breaking it, yes, there is a penalty. The penalty, though, is not as, if you're dr drastic. The penalty is, you get to clean up your own mess, you see, and we'll get to that in a moment. But the code is everything. Why am I talking about this? Because if you do not have a code, if you do not have integrity and a principle to live by, none of this will work. None of this will work. So various different Zen teachers have defined the code in various different ways. But the code can be summarized in this way. Pema Chodron talks about it in several of her writings. She says, before you can skillfully and effectively step into the path and complete your mission, you must eliminate all escape routes. You must eliminate all exits. If you have an escape route, you will take it. First, the code is eliminate all exits. 
That is to say, you need to give up your attachment to that part of the story we love the most. My excuses. My reasons why I can't. When you take a look at most people's reasons why they can't meditate tonight, or why they can't devote themselves to living uh, at a level of excellence, again, it is, uh, it is a part of the conditioning, part of the story that they have developed over and over the years. So when we begin to own our lives, we need to recognize how we have used the story. When you were little, when I was little, and we didn't want to go to school, we had a story. I'm sick. I'm not feeling well. It hurts so bad. You don't understand, and so forth. Our story, we become literally addicted and dependent upon it. And we pull it out of our bag full of alibis that we carry around with us and compromise our life everywhere with them. We need to see that the story and our attachment to it while the process can be used to help us free ourselves, ultimately needs to be discarded. And that is what Pema Chodron means when she says, you need to eliminate all escape routes. You need to stop making the story you've been telling yourself why you should be afraid and why you are not capable to meet any moment in life which you were designed, if you will, by God to do, you know, I often say to my Judeo-Christian brothers and sisters who have trained with me since 1975, God created this to work. In the, in the creation stories, we hear God saying, looking back on creation, it is good. And you've been trying to fix our mistakes ever since. They're saying, give it up. The first step is to eliminate all escape routes. And by that we mean Begin to recognize your attachment to the story, and every time you find yourself turning to the story as for why you can't, turn away. How do you do that? You just do it. I call it Nike Buddhism. <laughs> just do it. Every time you find yourself stuck and the story runs in your head, be afraid, be very afraid. Here's, again, we can do this the hard way, or the long way, or the short way. Here's an easier process that you might want to use. So when you find the story running in your head, be afraid, be very afraid, you stop and you ask yourself the question, how do I know that to be true? How do I know that the perceived threat is real? How do I know, the word is no, for a fact, just the facts, ma'am. For a fact that if I do this, I am in real, serious, life-threatening danger. Now, if you, if you do that, most of the time you'll find that just by asking that question, the answer is going to be, I don't know. If you don't know, move on. Move on. Again, Pema Chodron talks about when you're coming upon the fire that you're so afraid of, Instead of turning away, which is the story, lean into the fire and feel the heat upon you. Become intimate with the fire until you become the fire. When you become the fire, there's nothing to be afraid of. When you become it, there's nothing to be afraid of. People ask, how do I do that? What do I tell them? Just do it. You have been doing it that way all your life, whether you recognize it or not. 
all your life you've been triggered a certain way and you have reacted in the same exact way you reacted as a child. You just made it look a little better as an adult, a little more complicated, a little more sharp looking, you dressed it up and what have you. But you're still saying, I'm sick when I don't want to do what I need to do. You're still saying that, you know? Only after years and years of telling yourself that story, you get sick, you know? You get the diseases, you get ill and so forth. Or if you're really good, you drive the car into another car, you see. And then when you call in and say, I can't make it to work today, the car is broken down, you're not lying, you see. That's how far we will take it, you know, in our lives. So when we find the story surfacing, this is called mindfulness awareness practice. I notice the story surfacing. I stop. I take a deep breath and I ask myself, how do I know that to be a fact? How do I know that that story is true? If you cannot absolutely produce the evidence of it being fact-based, reject the story. You might say to yourself, hmm, there's another lie, you're saying. And because we will believe, you know, Rabbi and I were talking about this, how is it that in our nation, half of the citizenry, if they're correct about the statistics, in this country have come to accept lying as acceptable. Yes. Why? We don't like the politicians because we don't want to admit they look like us. We have been lying to ourselves as to why we can't since we were children in our stories because no part of the story, as many of the parts of it may seem accurate to you, and I'll give you a scientific proof on that in a moment, ultimately the story as a whole is a lie. Scientifically they just recently proved after years and years of studying memory and how the brain processes it, you know that memory you have about the past? Wrong. No matter how many times you say it is, they have proven that the brain plays that story over and over again, and you know what it does with it? Every time it plays it, it changes it. I am a twin. You can sit my sister in this room with me tonight, and we can talk about the past, and somewhere in the part of that conversation, she will look at me or I will look at her and I will say, I don't remember that. We grew up in the same household at the same pace for at least 16, 17 years of our life. No, don't remember that. Never happened. And so forth. Because I or she would be right. It didn't. So, the story is at best a fictional account when you rely on fiction as the ground for your daily living, there will be suffering. There will be discontent. You will never find the fulfillment or satisfaction in the story. And I often talk about the fact that part of the spiritual development or process involves learning how to make a distinction between life as the story we tell ourselves and life itself. And the, the surgical knife that cuts through that is this. Life is never in the story. That's why they say, let's tell a story about life. 
Whenever I am telling a story about life, I am not living life. I can't live life and tell my story about it at the same time. Do you hear that? The mind cannot be telling the story about life in this moment while you are actually living life in this moment. What does it mean to live life in this moment? You get up tonight, you go outside, you walk into, you, you know, you meet up with somebody you hadn't seen for years who disturbed you forever, someone you've been avoiding forever and so forth, and lo and behold, there they are. Wow, how that happened. There are some schools of thought that the universe said it's time for you to learn this lesson. I might agree with that on occasion, in a second. But let's say they're right. It is. How do I live my life in that moment? I meet that person, I talk with that person, I get to face all the emotions I have about that person until I have fully experienced those emotions. Why? Because there's a rule that has been handed down since ancient times by the masters and is also part of today's script in quantum physics. Whatever you fully experience disappears. Whatever you resist persists. Persist it long enough, you become it. Mm -hmm. You become the story. Because the story is always about resisting living in the moment. It's always telling us why we shouldn't talk to that person. It's always telling us why we shouldn't go there. It's always telling us, even when it's telling us we should talk to that person or should go there, be very, very, very skeptical about listening to the story. Because the story is always serving the mind's singular and exclusive purpose, which is survival of the being and anything the being considers itself to be. In that context, all that has happened when I think I have understood anything is that the mind has found a safe place to be in the moment, in the universe. So as a friend of mine used to say, all that understanding you go for, that's the booby prize. That's all it is. You cannot hide from your life. Own it. Become intimate with it. The way to become intimate with it, the story is always judging it. The story is always qualifying it, always testing it, always criticizing it. So another exercise I give my students is that every time you find yourself being critical or judgmental about yourself, or anyone else, you notice that that is what's going on, you take that breath, and as you exhale, you just simply say, ah, there's another lie. Because the story is always fictional. Always fictional. Any judgments of myself, criticisms of myself, or anyone else is a fictional retranslation of what is really so. Like it or not, Donald Trump has but a nature. Like it or not. Okay? And it doesn't matter whether you like it or not. Now, I often say to people, God and I have this relationship that goes way back. We are really tight. I don't complain to her, and she leaves me alone. (laughs) And so forth. So, all beings are Buddha, whether we like it or not. And I may have an opinion. There's nothing wrong with having opinions. What we are talking about tonight is do your opinions have you? Do your opinions have you? I may have a lot of feelings and emotions about the people I 
my opinions may be negative about. But when a time comes to feed them, I will share my bread with them. When a time comes to offering them compassion and loving kindness, I will do the same. That is my code. And the code takes precedence over my feelings, emotions, and thoughts, and so forth. If I am ever going to be free, if I am ever going to stay free, I must follow that code. There are days in my life when I must muster up all the compassion in the universe for some people, and I do, because that's my code. And I know that what leads or what follows breaking the code is death. I lose myself again and back to the drawing board. Any questions? We either stun them into silence or they're suddenly enlightened. <laughs> and they know everything. Not. <laughs> I, I tell a story about a friend of mine who was a diocesan priest in Philadelphia. And for many years, um, uh, I hung out with uh, uh, Franciscans and the uh, priests from Philadelphia. And many of them came for spiritual direction. This one particular friend of mine, uh, he had just been assigned to a new parish and one, one night we were at dinner and he says, oh, I can't believe I got this parish. And I, thought, and I was ready for him to talk about the people, but he, was talk, he wanted to tell me about his experience with the other priests that were in this parish. And he said, every time we get together for dinner, all they do is talk about the parishioners. All they do is complain about the parishioners. So I said, Tony, here's what you do. Here's how you resolve that. Tomorrow night when you go to dinner and that conversation begins, you throw your hands up in the air and you say, thank God we'll still have jobs tomorrow. <laughs> Did he? <laughs> but I, Did he? Nobody follows my advice. <laughs> Any questions? The Buddha was very clear in his response to that question in his time. And he would say, you need to find that out for yourself. So did the Buddha ever talk about God? No, he never went there. Uh, it, so it's often a mistake to attribute the Buddha's teachings or words to that question. Certainly others after him, other teachers have addressed it. But he never spoke about God, whether it exi God existed or not. Now, what I like to tell people, having been born and raised Catholic and become a Buddhist monk, I often say to people that ask me that question, do you believe in God? I say, I don't believe in what people say about God. But you've got to figure that out for yourself. So it's not important whether Buddhism teaches that or not. What's important is, do you get that or not? And how that works for you. So I like to shock people by telling people I don't believe in God. So they say, you're a rabbi, you don't believe in God. I say, no, I don't believe in God. Well, why don't you believe in God? Well, which is a more accurate statement, in your opinion? I believe that you're here sitting across from me, or I know that you're here sitting across mm -hmm. from me. 
Wouldn't you say that, I know, he's, he's here sitting across. Do I believe he's here? You know, I, what's your name? Bobby. Bobby. Bobby is here now. Tomorrow morning, I might not believe in Bobby anymore. What happens to Bobby if I wake up tomorrow morning and say, I no longer believe? What happens? What's going to happen to you? Nothing. Well, I wouldn't. Don't be careful. <laughs> I don't believe so, so, for me, God is, the nature of God in the universe is as real to me as you are, sitting across from me. So, it feels inaccurate to me, and always has, but to say I believe in God. And I'm in, the, I'm in the camp of the Jewish mystics. I'm in the camp of the Jewish mystics. So that tends to be what, how we mystics define it. Uh, it's not theology, it's not Judaism, it's Kabbalah, it's Jewish mystics. So God to me uh, is as real as, as anything. And, and, and it's, it's a little... I sometimes have trouble not getting how not everybody gets that. You know, how people could say God isn't here and at the time. You know, God's going, yo, well, you know, here I am. No, God. My teacher Reb Zaman used to say, "This is how when we pray to God, this is what we do. We pick up the telephone. Remember in the days when they had telephones, you could pick yeah, up. Yeah. Right? You pick up the telephone. We go, hello, God. This is my problem, and you pour out your heart before God, and you go, please give me an answer. Goodbye." <laughs> and then you say, God didn't answer me. You hung up the phone. What, what's, how do we stay on the line? Meditation. Yes. Meditation is what keeps us on the line. So I don't believe in God. But I, I believe in Bob. I think the, my question is more about not whether there is some kind of power. Obviously, there is you know, this amazing world this without it. But this belief of an anthropomorphic type of And people have different needs depending on their state of development. You know, when I'm teaching little children, if a five-year-old comes to me and says, was there really a talking snake with Adam and Eve? I say, absolutely. There's a talking snake, because that's what you tell five-year-olds. Uh, so you have to see where people are. Now, if somebody's 12-year-old and they say, so there was this talking snake in the garden, I say to them, what are you, kidding me? You believe in talking snakes? Are you crazy? So what is... People go through, society goes through stages of development. So a stage of development is one in which we believe that there's a being, a superior being, or a superior communication, something in a book or a scroll, and, that's, and, and we have laws and we have to follow that. That's, a, that's, that's called the, the pre-modernist level of understanding. And that those laws and those beings determine everything that goes on in the universe. And the level right after that is science. That comes in and says it doesn't, it rains because there are water molecules and everything else that start accumulating, and not because an invisible man in the sky says rain, or woman says rain. So we understand that. And then we get to a place, postmodernism, where we start to say, you know what, there's all kinds of strange forces that go on in the universe and all kinds of really weird things that work, like you know, acupressure, acupuncture, and, and Reiki, and all these kinds of things. And so we know that psychic abilities exist, and all meditation, we have documented proof as to what meditation does and how it changes brain waves and the mind. So we're able to know that sort of post-scientifically that we're more than just our mind. So, we, so the question to ask yourself is when you're talking to somebody, 
where the, which stage are they coming from? Are they coming from the stage of believing there's an anthropomorphic being that gave us a set of rules and you have to follow those rules and you wind up in a really hot place? <laughs> or do you, do you take a more scientific approach and say, I don't believe any of that stuff, it's all according to science? Or do you take an approach that says, I, I believe in all that stuff, but I'm also aware that there are some very interesting, subtle energies going on in the universe that I wish to tap into. And it's that third process, and by the way, that's not the highest state of consciousness and understanding. It goes, turtles all the way up and down. It goes all the way up. That, that's, that's what we teach. We teach how to get to the next level of development. And as Roshi said in his remarks, you have to be in the right place to be able to move from one level to another. And once you get to that next level of development, it comes back to this. I'll share two stories. When I was very young, I thought it was important that I believed there was a God. As I got older, I realized it was more important that I live God-likely in the world. Okay? So once you get to that awareness, once you get to that level of consciousness of the answer to that question and the, the fullness of that answer, then it comes down to this. Does the world really need another believer or does the world really need to be fed, to be clothed, to be given drink when it's thirsty, to be liberated from prison, to be accepted as equals? In the end, again, Zen is, and the Buddha was more interested, and he said this, he said, I teach suffering and its causes and the liberation from suffering. End of story, he said. That's what I'm interested in. What is this suffering? Whether I believe in God doesn't make any bit of difference when there is suffering in my life and in the world. So, uh, you know, I had the privilege of meeting Mother Teresa one day. And one of the stories about Mother Teresa that I've never forgotten was when she first, when she flew to Moscow to open up a AIDS hospice in that city. She was invited by the Catholics that were there to come and combat AIDS at a time in Moscow when it was rampant. So she went and she opened up an AIDS hospice in that city. And as she was coming off the plane, the reporters, you know, mobbed her. And the Pope had just made a declaration about some teaching in the church at that time. I think it was John Paul I at that time. And she was asked, the Pope said this, what do you think? And she said, I don't care about that. I'm here to help my sisters and brothers suffer. So again, we need to, part of this process, and it is the role of the teacher, to keep us f focused, attentive to where the real matters are. The answer to your question will not be found in some metaphysical discussion. It will not be found in some book about it. It will be found in your interacting with your life and others in a way that frees you and others up from suffering. Then come back and we'll have that discussion. Okay. Any other questions? Well, I guess we've done our job here. <laughs> Till next time. Till next time. Till next time. There will be a next time. Thank good. God we'll have our job. <laughs> <laughs> so I have a couple of announcements I'd like to share with you. One, uh, 
as I've said always in these moments, tonight we've talked about practice. We've talked about spirituality. We've talked about training. Ultimately, the, the validity of what we talked about happens after you leave here. So, for example, tomorrow morning we get to do the work of spirituality. Tomorrow morning we have a period of time we call uh, Sunday morning meditation and prayers, and you're welcome to come back and join me and Matsumiko uh, for that tomorrow morning. Also, you need to visit our website if you haven't. Maybe you heard about us through Facebook or maybe in the mailing, but on the website you'll see where we have time to talk about it and we have time where we really do the work. And so the website will give you uh, opportunities to learn more about that. My final announcement tonight, well actually not my final announcement, but the one I've been excited more than all the other announcements to share with you. So my dear friend Rabbi Simon, who I've known as he indicated earlier for over 25 years now, and throughout that period of time we have given talks like this uh, uh, in various different places all over the, uh, the tri-state area and so forth, will be joining us as a member and a faculty member of Pine Wind uh, in the days ahead. So you'll get to hear more of his stories and uh, he will be coming on board as a teacher and uh, part of our, uh, again, uh, faculty here at Pine Wind in the days ahead. So welcome. welcome. Uh, again, next month, the topic will be called the donning of the mass and we'll look more into that early years of conditioning that has to do with the strongest of our false identities and how that identity literally shapes and forms everything else in our life. Anyone have an idea what that is? Get to say it tonight and, and it'd be true. Your identity with your parents. Oh. Okay. So we will take a look at how that initial, that initial identity, that very first identity, literally shapes and form and how, again, learning how to don the mask and detach from that identity can be one of the most powerful, liberating moments in your life. The other thing I want to, uh, again, let you know about is that next month on October 15th, that morning of, the, of that talk that will be given later that night, will be our first effort to welcome families, that is parents with children, here at Pine Wind in the learning and meditation process. So I will be offering a three-hour workshop on the art of Zen parenting, and you will be able, those of you with children, bring your children to that event. They will be taken in another part of the monastery and taught their, uh, what they need to learn, as Rabbi said, you know, you've got the children learning and you've got the grown-ups. And I'll be meeting with the grown-ups here in the Dharma Hall, uh, laying down the groundwork for what we hope to be a monthly experience uh, designed to support parents in parenting their children more skillfully and effectively and with a Zen flair. So it'll be October 15th, which is the morning of the evening Zen chat. That'll be going on. Uh, so if you haven't been to our website, you need to go there. And I often have people call me and say, what programs do you have? And they're looking at the website, and I say, well, what's on the website? 
And they said, well, yeah, I see the calendar, but can you tell me what programs you have? So I want you to know that when you're looking at that calendar, they're your programs, okay? So those are the programs we have available here for the public. And again, as the rabbi makes his way in, we will be bringing in uh, some more programs that will be listed there, but you can trust that when you're looking at that website and you're looking at that calendar, they're the real programs. And so, and we, and we design it in such a way that all the information you'll need about each program is listed there. Emyo, any other announcements? I have a question. Oh, yes. Yes, I, I obviously don't have a computer for me. When is the, the morning service on Sundays? Uh, it is two Sundays a month. So tomorrow morning, and again, there's a, oh, print, there's a printed calendar out there. Oh, there and if you don't have a computer, then I'll take your call and answer your questions. I okay. okay. Oh, you do? Okay. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but there's a calendar out there, but tomorrow morning, 9 o'clock. It's from 9 to 10.30. Okay. Emyo, any other announcements? Yes. Beginner's meditation class? Yes. For those of you who want to begin to learn the, uh, the uh, practice of meditation, Wednesday evening at 7 o'clock, Shoshin, is the beginner's meditation class, and it's from 7 to, uh, 7 to 9 this coming Wednesday. Thank you. And if you really are serious, I mean really devoted, and you can really detach from your story as to why you can't get up so early. You're welcome to join me Wednesday, Thursdays, and Fridays for early dawn meditation, uh, which is uh, my favorite time to meditate at 5.30 in the morning. It used to be 4 o'clock, but people complained. <laughs> Wake up early and enlightenment? Nah. <laughs> Go fishing, yes. <laughs> Enlightenment. But Sumiko? No, no. Okay, very good. So as always, and I mean this from the bottom of my heart, it has been a privilege to spend tonight with you. Thank you for coming. Thank you.